podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Jessica Pelton, who will be a 2022 alumna from the College of Literature, Sciences, and the Arts, majoring in psychology. She's the current president of the Michigan Caregivers and Student Parent Organization, a student-sponsored organization through CEW that is focused on creating community among student caregivers through programming and events. Jessica, welcome to Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. It's been an honor working alongside you over the past six months to advance student parent initiatives across campus. And you've created so much change in such a short amount of time, it's quite inspirational. Would you mind just starting by introducing yourself and telling me a bit about your educational focus and career goals? I am Jessica, a senior here at U of M in psychology. And my educational focuses are primarily around student parents and children with disabilities, which focuses on a lot of my own identities, being a student parent myself and experiencing the struggles here at U of M. And the children with disabilities comes from, I have a disability myself, I have ADHD, had a lot of struggles as a child and an adult coming back into the education. And I have a daughter with a brain tumor that has caused some disabilities on her end and trying to manage that as a parent now. And then my career goals are, I actually hope to pursue more work with CEW. I love the work I've already doing and helping student parents and making a difference on campus. If I were to change career goals, I really want to work with children, especially children with disabilities, and helping them find their voice as someone that never felt like I had a voice. So that's been something that's really important to me. Yeah, you mentioned not feeling like you had a voice. What were some of the contributing factors at U of M or in other educational institutions that kind of gave you that sense of voicelessness? As a child, it was always a struggle in any educational setting of, oh, well, you have ADHD, like you're not capable of this, or if you can just pass, that's good enough. Like there wasn't as much pressure of me doing well or succeeding or going further. There was no talk of college with me growing up. It never felt like there was high expectations of me or that I was capable of things. So when I graduated high school, I thought that was it for me. I thought education clearly isn't my thing. It's not going to happen. And then when I started at WCC, right before I started, I had met with an advisor and was just kind of like, here's what I'm going through with my daughter. She has brain surgery in like two weeks. And they actually told me not to go. Even before I started, I felt like the opportunities were already being taken from me, given that I had this child with a tumor and I'm starting with all these other variables. Even starting college, it, it felt like people were already against me. And then when I came to U of M too, it felt so focused on, well, you're a student raising a daughter with a brain tumor. And I had to really fight for like, but I'm more than that. I'm not just a mom with a daughter who has a tumor, like I come with so much other knowledge and experience and 
even like fighting my own battles with being so different and non-traditional and older and having the ADHD that I started so scared here and not wanting to tell people anything because it felt like it so much was against me that I really had to work up the courage to like start speaking out about myself and finding my own voice and being able to share what I wanted to share compared to like what I felt like people needed me to share or feeling like I had more of a reason to be here than just being the mom of a sick child. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you kind of found your identity as a student the past couple of years. I know you're an honor student. And I also know you are highly accomplished in being able to create change on campus. Could you talk a little bit about your focus for your honors program as well as the type of change you've been working on at U of M? So my honors thesis came from, I started research with a professor, Dr. Kevin Miller, winter 2020, just did like a basic methods research course, I believe it was, it's part of my requirements. And then everything got moved online and he knew I was a student parent. And as the winter term was ending, he actually wanted to do a spring course of a few different research projects. And one of them was he wanted to do research on parents with children handling the pandemic and like how it's altered and like doing all your children's schooling online and like what that really looked like for parents during the pandemic. Since he knew I was a parent, he wanted, he recruited me and wanted me to be a part of the course to really give uh, more traditional students like an actual inside look of like what it's like to be a parent during the pandemic. And I was able to do both. I was a student and a parent. So I could give these students this whole other outlook that was really unique and very personal. And so, of course, I was honored to do. I was so excited. I got to be such a big piece for this class and really just be who I was because it was going to help this group of students. It was a very exciting piece for me. And we considered furthering that research, which we didn't get the chance to. But in the winter semester, I had reached out to him again just to figure out kind of what research options were available to me or kind of how I could even start research because that was really all I had done for the time. So he pitched the idea of the honors thesis and originally it kind of got in my head of like me, an honors thesis, like there's no way, (laughs) but I had things that made it possible. And so after I spoke to him, I got really excited and was able to pick my topic. I wanted to look into how children were handling the pandemic, especially children with disabilities, because I was seeing my own child basically being rejected by her school, who constantly told her she couldn't do things. I was always having to advocate for her and fight for her saying like, she can do this. I've seen her do this time and time again. I don't know why you don't think she can. And then go through the hassle of getting an IEP that she should have had since like the first day of school, given her brain tumor, I had just seen so much struggle with her of she was supposed to have these services and getting these services was so delayed and pushed back. And it was like they were allowing a child to just slip under the rug. It wasn't a concern of theirs. But for me, it was like, this is my own daughter. And so that really sparked something in me of being like, you know, 
if I am seeing this firsthand, like how many other kids are going through this? How many other kids are being rejected and turned down? How many families are just being completely neglected, not helped? And these kids, like this is their education. This is their future. They're just completely being neglected with what they need. And so I wanted to take a deep dive of how many families went through this? What was their experiences? Because I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure mine isn't the only unique one. Even if mine has some parts that other families didn't experience, I'm sure they have things that I didn't experience. And I also wanted to look at how kids with disabilities handled the back and forth. I know some schools jumped right in person, but then they would close for two weeks and then they'd open for two weeks and close for two weeks. And that's really hard on a child with their education and the constant adjustment. So it was really important to me to see that. Then the work I've done here at U of M stemmed from my own struggles as well. When I first came here, I would get comments of even a professor talking about their kids and then making kind of a remark of, but you guys wouldn't understand. And it was really hard because I was like, dude, my child is older than yours. Like I've been a parent longer than you. I have struggles that you don't even understand. It would be hard because I'm sure they didn't mean it in that way, but it was almost offensive of being like, parent-wise, you're technically a younger parent than me, even though you're older than me. There's so many struggles that you don't understand or having a child with health issues. And I'm a student here. I've been through more than most people can imagine kind of thing. That is what made me start to speak up. Upon speaking up, the right person heard in the right situation. And it kind of furthered things. The same winter as my honors thesis stuff began, I actually got more involved with the right people and after hearing rejection after rejection, I finally decided like enough is enough. You need to stop telling students that like we don't exist or you didn't know we were here. Like that kind of stuff is just not okay. And it sparked all of my work here. And from there, I just started meeting with as many people as I could, getting more involved. And I would say like if it wasn't for CEW, I don't think any of that would have been possible. They really had my back on all of that and really supported me along that way and getting me in a lot of the connections. So from there, it just, it grew. Yeah, that's really cool. Especially how you're serving as not only a student activist on campus and trying to advocate for yourself and other student parents, but how at the same time you were serving as a parent advocate for your daughter and um, really creating change within the school system. So working the K through 12 system as well as higher education simultaneously in your research on students with disabilities um, in COVID, did you have some findings related to what types of accommodations were most supportive or where they were struggling the most or being neglected the most? Yes, I would say the biggest finding as far as like the struggles go were schools seem to either not be accommodating all of the additional resources that children by law are required. So speech therapy, reading interventionists, occupational therapy, psychology resources, or the different social work resources. Schools by law are required to do all this stuff and they weren't doing them. There were a lot of children with disabilities that I would say were very quickly swept under the rug and it was kind of like, oh, we don't have the resources or we don't know how or 
with speech therapy, that's a really hard one to accommodate. Like even if they were trying, there's a big difference of being on Zoom than being in person and showing these children how to do these things they need or with occupational therapy. My daughter, for example, goes for handwriting and it was just impossible to show her how to do that online. She just wasn't able to get the same resource. And so that seemed to be pretty across the board as far as what kids were lacking. As far as something, I would say the thing that children with disabilities were maybe better for was some parents hired tutors. And I would say they were getting through that, they were getting more one-on-one help. I'll just use my daughter as an example. We had a, we hired a tutor, and so she was getting one-on-one help for a good three to four hours every day that she wasn't getting in a classroom. So she had that direct help with different assignments where she could understand it better. And if she needed it, help reading a more complicated thing, she was able to get that. And in a normal class setting, she wouldn't. So it's almost like when they were trying to just establish new patterns for class happening, those with disabilities just got left out and that they were trying to create processes and procedures for students without disabilities and that in the process, all of the accommodations that traditionally would be provided got left behind. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. When you look at the work that you've accomplished on both fronts for your daughter and making sure that she's feel, she feels heard, as well as the work of student parents being heard on campus, what aspect of the work do you find most rewarding? I would say the people that have talked about the help that they now get. Like I've, I've definitely had student parents come up to me and like specifically say they benefited from the changes I made or I worked on or I helped with. And it was areas that when I first got here, I definitely struggled in those or didn't have that resource and would have benefited from it. And so hearing them be like, this literally changed my life or like I debated not coming here until I got this help at the last minute or something. I would say that's been the biggest reward for me of just being like, I'm physically seeing the change happen. I'm seeing the people who are benefiting from it. I'm hearing the conversations go on around this. And I'm seeing it spark so much more work, so much more people. I feel like I'm meeting new people every week with this work. And it it gets more exciting every time. And meeting people at other universities and having so many conversations. I think there's so many rewards in it the list kind of goes on of rewards honestly it just it feels like so um, such important work that I know if there's other demographics of students that are struggling hopefully this work along with the work for other demographics that have happened recently can spark that change to help all students when we started the conversation it was about um, your own voice and um you know, as a parent, we're all struggling to help our kids find their voice and to find their place in the world. What advice would you give to other parents about how to ensure that their child, whether with a disability or not, has their voice heard and feels like they can do what they want, reach and accomplish their goals? My biggest piece of advice would be 
don't take no. Um, and that's actually advice I've given a few student parents even. And another mom with a child with disabilities was don't take no. A lot of times there are resources available. Um, so for children with disabilities, let's say like there are actual legal obligations to the school that a lot of people don't realize. And there's also resources available to parents with students with disabilities that you won't hear about them unless you go through the right avenue or you stumble across it or you know another parent that has a child with a disability. There is an advocacy service that will come to your meetings that basically holds the school legally accountable for certain things. And I wasn't aware of this resource until I actually spoke to a lawyer ready to sue the school because I said, what you're doing is illegal. You're completely neglecting my child and she has legal rights and she has the right to an equal opportunity in education and should be getting one. And you're just completely rejecting her education. You don't even want to teach her. Like it was to the point that she told me other people were doing her work, fellow students. So they weren't even allowing her to do work. And I'm like, she's fully capable. She can do it. She just sometimes might need the question read in a different format or something. And so that was something that I had to learn the hard way, but I was able to share with several other parents for their students, like, here's this service that you can utilize and they will hold the school legally accountable. And if the school still doesn't like want to follow the law, like you have every right to sue them. It's, it's in your rights. That's like my biggest piece of advice I would say is just the school at an elementary level, middle school level, high school level, and even university level, their initial response seems to always be no. It's not until like in a lot of aspects. And I went through this even here at U of M where I said, actually, like this is a thing. And it's just sometimes that people don't know the answer. They don't have the right resource or some people just aren't aware that that resource exists within that department. And so you need to try every avenue possible and speak to every person possible and keep circling back, keep reminding, because if it doesn't exist, you asking about it over and over again might spark that change to make it exist. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it sounds like, uh, regardless of the context, that by you being a really strong proponent for your daughter's rights, you ensure that your daughter feels heard and supported. And then you're doing the same for yourself now at U of M and for other student parents, which is really cool. Yes, it was, uh, it was, it was very scary initially. I went into it and I think other students have felt this going into it as I'm just a student and you're thinking about people who run this college. And so when you see it as like, but I'm just a student and you feel like this very small piece in a very, very big system, it gets really intimidating, really scary. And I definitely say like, I struggled with that of getting away from the like, oh, I'm just a student though. And being like, but my voice does matter and I can create the change. And it was once I stopped kind of hiding behind that voicelessness. And once I started speaking up, that's when the actual change happened. That's the biggest piece everyone should feel important everyone should know like they're a moving piece in this whole thing yeah it's interesting i was just watching a webinar from a person talking about leadership and she said that the the hardest struggle that all of us face is our own internal saboteurs 
And that really struck home of like how many times do we self-doubt ourselves? And then that becomes what stops us from doing what's right. And like what you just said, it sounds like that same thing of the internal dialogue that we keep repeating in our heads and how to kind of get past that so we can do the work that we need to do in the world. Yes, I would say that is the the truest piece. And my boss gave me the best piece of advice. If you don't try, then you deny yourself before the person can. And so that's something that sticks with me of like, if you don't send that email, you're saying no to yourself. And it's, it's so true. You have to try, you have to speak up, you have to use your voice and know that you matter, your voice matters, your opinion matters, and you just got to go for it. Yeah, when you think about like your work in the two different contexts, so for in the school for your daughter as well as at U of M, do you use common strategies between the two? Yeah, I would say amongst both is where I I learned that I had to just get firm with what I knew was right or wrong. And I would say a lot of that actually started with her tumor diagnosis was her doctors were rejecting what she was going through. She had very abnormal symptoms, but they were there. They were very real. They were altering her life. They were affecting her. And it caused us to remove her from preschool because I didn't feel she was safe. It started with, I had to learn to tell her doctors, like, you do something or I will take her to someone that will. Because, like, enough is enough. It's to the point what you're doing could permanently affect my daughter. Unfortunately, it could be the reason she has some of the other struggles she does because they waited a little too long to have surgery. That's where I really learned that, like, you have to push for what you believe in. And so then when she got into school... It was kind of the same thing all over again. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to hear. And finally, I said, you know what? Like, no, like, I'm telling you, this is what needs to happen. Or like, she's definitely capable of this. It was like time and time again, they didn't want to listen. So we pulled her from the school. We did what we knew it was right. I reported them. Like, I went through the whole process of um, what I kind of knew to do. And so I think across the board, that was something I learned with when a situation is not legal or not right or really out of hand, you need to report it because if you don't, they're just going to hurt someone else. And so it was the same thing here. I had a professor that really rejected me as a student parent and right away I knew it was wrong. I knew they weren't allowed to reject me based on me being a parent and that had nothing to do with my academics. I took the steps to report the professor and make it knowledgeable because I didn't want another student parent to go through what I went through. That's a few things I would say that I've really used across all the boards as far as advocating and pushing for those changes and knowing what is right, what is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does, you know, if you had a magic wand, what's one change you would hope to see in the future? I would say people in general, just be more accepting. Everyone has their own unique identity. No one person is plain and simple. <laughs> like Everyone has some kind of unique identity. And if as a society we were more accepting, more people would speak up about it. More people would respect these different identities that make us different. But they not only like make us different, they make us unique and amazing as like who we are. And if we just respected the fact that we all come from these different backgrounds and different identities, there would just be so much more respect and so much more 
honoring the different identities and it would make for a much more positive environment academically, socially, and just personally. Yep. That would be amazing if we could make that happen. (laughs) (laughs) I like to end on a light note, which is we've been in the pandemic now for coming up on two years straight here. And all of us have found different ways to cope with the pandemic. Have you found any particular podcasts or books or movie series, TV series, or anything that you've kind of rested on that others might enjoy that you've that you've used? Um, okay, this this answer is going to be totally maybe laughable. My my thing has been my work. <laughs> I. I love my work so much. It's really been my saving grace during this, I guess. My calm. And I know that sounds funny because most people want to escape their work. I don't. When I get stressed, I dive into my work. My family had a really brutal year of people passing and different diagnosis. And it was when I would get the news, I just worked extra. And it really helped me because my work can be so beneficial as a whole, Um, helping the student parents and helping improve university campus, that it was that saved me in so many ways of just knowing that what I was doing with my work was for this bigger picture and for the better of so many people that it, it really helped me. Like I, I honestly don't know what I would have done this year if I didn't have my work. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for being a participant on the podcast. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Adawa, and Potawatomi. 